0: Chapter 6. On Kingly Responsibilities. How do we know that a thing is a thing? How does one know that a chair is a chair or a house is a house? We know that something is what we call it because it possesses certain attributes, and in the possession of those attributes, it holds a level of responsibility. When a chair breaks, we grow angry with it. When something does not function as it ought to, then we do not think it is a good thing. If a bucket had a hole in the bottom of it, it would not be a good bucket, as it cannot actually fulfill its role as a bucket. So why do we neglect to understand people in such a light? If one claims to be a king, or a man of God, or a learned man, yet they do not possess the requisite attributes to actually be considered such, why do we accept their claims that they are such? If a king does not fulfill his role as a king, then why should he be considered a king? This is because the word and notion of kingship have been stolen away by the tyrant and the coward to make it their own, instead of looking to a kingly ideal and becoming such. So how does one define a king? Typically we see the image of the king as descended from some sort of royal line. They are one who possesses great power and rules a given land or kingdom, Yet the attributes we overlook are those which separate a bad king from a good king. If the king's duty is to ensure the safety and security of the land, then that is the baseline ideal for how a king is to govern. We can know that this is right as we know that it is wrong for a man to do evil. To tend to the good of oneself at the expense of those who are under the king's stead is an evil thing. For what good man can rightly say, I have the ability to help my people, and though it would cost me little, I refuse to give so that my people might prosper? So long as a man has it in his grasp to provide for his people, and yet refuses to do so, this man has neglected his duties and is no longer rightly considered a king. And this evaluation extends not only to the family life, but to every corner of one's consideration. In professional terms, if an employer has the ability to bring about a better outcome for his employees, yet refuses to offer such, then he has failed. If a pastor can lead his flock better, yet refuses to do so, then he has failed. If a man refuses to care for their friends as he ought to, then he has failed. Furthermore, it is the role of the king to defend his people as well. This extends not only to physical and emotional threats, but also those which are spiritual by nature. Again, self-reflection is necessary in order to ensure that it is not one's self who brings about such damage first and foremost. But one must also approach the same subject in terms of the church. If a family is led in wrong doctrine within the church, then it is responsibility of those leading to either address the problem in the church, or find an alternative location for fellowship. It is not for a king to dwell upon those times of misfortune. If a situation be unjust, then he ought to correct his behavior or seek the correction of conduct in others. If others refuse such correction, then we do not seek company with those people. Rather, leave them where they are, that your absence may inspire conviction. If your absence were of any value to them, they will feel that loss in their bones. One must adapt to what is good and right, so seek such conduct. If one has been unjust in character, then leave it behind and let the portion of yourself die from starvation. Kill the part of yourself which may be killing others, if need be. Instead, you must strive forward to that which is right. This is not merely thinking positive thoughts, but recognizing the weight and beauty of one's position. If you are constantly plagued by those things which are no longer of any concern, then your attention will be divided and you cannot give due care to the situation at hand. In the same manner, if one is preoccupied by their own sinful inclinations, then how are they to give regard to what is good and right? This is not to say that one will be completely free from sin, but one must examine themselves to consider their own motives. Again, we must put to death those parts of ourselves which stand to threaten those put under our stead. This partial killing of one's inclinations stems from the root of selflessness. Such a root removes any possibility of abusing one's power. One such example of abusing power and position is the story of David and Bathsheba. Before I enter into this discourse, I desire to discuss the nature of the design of humans. Now, humans are designed to be satisfied by God and that which is from God, thus glorifying Him in their offering of gratitude. Naturally, those things which are from God will be necessarily good and holy even those things which are not entirely comfortable to us in our own consideration, as those things work to fashion us into an image which is honoring to him. Such fashioning is indeed good as we are being shaped into the image of his Son who suffered on our behalf. Since we are designed to be satisfied by God, we must understand God's nature if we are to understand our hunger. Our hunger is defined by that which we crave. A stomach hungers for a certain amount of food, And so, if we fulfill our appetite beyond what we are capable of receiving, then we will be drawn into some manner of physical pain. However, we turn our eyes to the nature of God, and we know him to be life and life eternal. We know him to be infinite and loving and all-knowing. While I could list all of his attributes, it would be necessary in this instance to only detail his infinite nature for the purpose of this examination. For if we hunger for something which is eternal, then this would render our hunger to be eternal. Only that which is eternal could rightly satisfy such a hunger. Yet in our sin we do not crave God, but our hunger remains just as strong and endless. Furthermore, as we crave the life that he offers us in our sin, we seek such life through those experiences around us. In this regard we may seek life from those who surround us. We desire their attention, their affections, their cares, their efforts. Yet this hunger will never be satisfied as it is by necessity of our being infinite. This eventually leads us to draining those around us by our need for their love, as it is clearly seen through experience that when one feels loved, one also feels more alive. This is the pursuit of being satisfied in God alone in the face of this sinful hunger. If one does indeed offer love to us, we may be satisfied in God through such love, as we know that if it is good, then we know it is from God. We desire more than what is rightly due us, and we put such pursuit to death as our duty is to give of ourselves and not take life. We are called to protect life, not take it. With such a framework in mind, we turn our attention to David. He has become king of Israel and has established himself as a good and righteous king in the eyes of God. Our story begins in a time of war. David is not only established as a righteous king, but also as a warrior king. And we'll explore this concept later. But he slayed Goliath. He defeated the Philistines who sought to kill him once he had been coronated. He killed and removed the foreskins of 200 Philistines so that he could take Saul's daughter in marriage. Among these and other stories we can know that David is by no means unacquainted with warfare. Yet we can see David taking a holiday of a sort during this time of war in his kingdom. He's walking among his palace when he sees a beautiful woman bathing. David becomes enraptured by her beauty and plans starts to hatch in his head. He sees her bathing and assumes she is purifying herself after she has had her period and so assumes that there will be no long-term effects from his dalliance. He finds out the name of the woman and sees that her husband is away fighting in the war. He sends out his guards to retrieve her and brings her to him. One manner of reading this passage suggests that he effectively rapes her. Some time later she sends word to tell him that she is pregnant with his child. David seeks to cover his sin by bringing her husband back from the war so that he can have sex with her and seemingly impregnate her. However, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, declares that so long as his men are without comfort, he will not take such an opportunity to have comfort for himself. Already we see a contrast between David and Uriah. David takes what is not his during a time when he should be leading his men. Uriah refuses the comfort of his wife while he pays regard to the men who are still suffering. David tries again by getting Uriah drunk, but nothing happens even still. David's last resort is to put Uriah at the front lines in order to make certain that he will be killed in battle. And that is exactly what happens. Uriah is put on the line, the rest of the army withdraws, and Uriah is struck down. David's song of repentance is Psalm 51, and it's beautiful and heartbreaking after he's rebuked by Nathan the prophet, but I want to focus on a particular aspect of the story. David lost sight of his role as a king as he looked not to his responsibility, but to his position of power. He viewed his subjects as a form of property in a sense. They were his toys to be used for his whim and pleasure. Due to David's sin, Bathsheba was raped, lost a husband, and lost a child. Now, despite David's sin against Bathsheba, Uriah, his unborn child, and the army which he made complicit in the murder of Uriah, David still declares that it is God foremost which he has sinned against. This is not to lessen the transgression against the humans who suffered because of his sin, but to heighten the gravity of his sin. It is not merely against humans who will die and pass away as the grass, It is against god who is above all and able to exact perfect justice that david has sinned one must recall that it is not merely those who may be wronged by your misleading but it is god most of all that one despises when one fails to pay the appropriate regard to those souls which are being shepherded and uses them for one's own personal gain then one has lost sight entirely of the mission Your benefit as a king will not be derived by what you receive from your subjects, but it will come from the king under whom you serve. On that final day, when he looks at you and either says, Well done, my good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. Your benefit will be rightly seen as being welcomed by the king of kings. For this reason, you must pay appropriate regard to these subjects and not seek after your own gain from your position. If your own gain is what drives you, then you must understand that in seeking to gain for yourself, you will lose everything. Pay correct regard to these hearts and minds which you preside over. Therefore, given all that has been said about the weight that is placed upon the shoulders of the king, we ought to recognize that it is the duty of the king to lead, protect, and guide his people. You must be able to do these tasks with all the attributes and virtues which were discussed in the previous chapter. But these are the responsibilities of the king. He leads his people as he serves them and does not expect of them anything he is unwilling to do. He protects them from threats from abroad, from within, and even from himself. And he guides his people in times of confusion when the route to be taken is uncertain or foggy. He places their needs above his own as he regards them of greater importance. The duty of the king is to build his kingdom and that means building up those who are in his kingdom. He does this selflessly with the aim of seeing them flourish, as he knows that he is a king who is under the highest king.